welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. I strive to keep all my podcasts under the 60-minute mark, but my interview with today's guest went way over. So rather than leave anything on the cutting room floor, so to speak, I've split it into two. And this is part one, with part two due out next week. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I did recording it. There are very few people anywhere, let alone hairdressers, that are known by one name. But if you're in this industry, you'll almost definitely have heard of the name Guido. And if by some remote chance you haven't heard the name, you would have definitely seen his work. I don't use the word genius very readily, but when it comes to hair, Guido is a genius. I first met him in the early 80s. We both worked at Midel Sassoon in London, and I remember him as being someone who stood out. There was always something special about him. And at the time, aside from a great personality, it wasn't obvious exactly what that something special was. He certainly wasn't arrogant, but he had an opinion. And he wasn't intimidated by anyone. He always seemed confident in who he was, and he was forging his own path. He's since gone on to become an absolute visionary and a true artist in the fullest sense of the word. And he has worked with everybody, and I mean everybody, of any notoriety in the fashion business. His work often pushes at the boundaries of beauty. It's always flawless in its execution. And understandably, his influence and the direction he takes has reached far beyond hairdressing. But he's also had an impact on all of today's great hairdressers the world over. One of the reasons that I like podcasts is because you get the chance to get into people's minds and understand how they think. And to me, that's often where the real magic is. I love to understand the story behind what makes a person do what they do, how they think about it. And the more you do that, the more inspiring, but unfortunately, also sometimes the less obtainable it is because you can't always teach it. So in today's podcast, we're going to discuss Guido's journey to the top, the importance of collaborations, what drives his creativity, social media and the impact it's had on fashion magazines, and what influence coronavirus might have on fashion, and lots more. So without further ado, I am so happy to have this opportunity to talk with Guido on the Grow My Salon Business podcast. So welcome to the show, Guido. Hi, thanks, Andy. That was such a nice introduction. Thank you for that. Well, my absolute pleasure. Every word of it is absolutely true. Now, uh, I want to thank you for for giving us your time today. I know you're a very private person and you don't do many interviews. So, you know, thank you for taking the time to to be with us today. Uh, I know that uh, the audience that are listening to this are going to get an enormous uh, lot out of it. So, um I think that where we should start is where we left off, which from memory was in the early 80s, so about 35 years ago. I hate even saying that. <laughs> uh, st- standing outside of Adel Sassoon Salon in South Moulton Street in London after you had been fired. And I know you don't mind me saying that because that's part of your story. Um, right. So I know you were there for about 18 months. Tell us about that period of your career. Well, I, I, you know, 
when I decided that hairdressing was going to be a career for me, I wanted to go to what was what I thought was the best. So I sort of applied to be Dow Sassoon. I lived in Bournemouth, Dorset, and um, I didn't want to do my training there. I think I want, you know, part of my thing was to get to London as well. Do you know what I mean? And I was lucky enough to get an apprenticeship at uh, the South Morton Street branch where you were. And um, yeah, I, I, it was funny because it, imp- it, it informed me in so many ways, but we actually didn't get on that well, me and the company, you know, their sort of their teachings and the way they kind of, um, you know, uh, taught and the, just the whole, um, you know, as you know, Anthony, it came with a lot of kind of rules, Bidao Sassoon and being yeah. there, which were great. And they, they still stay with me today. And, that short period I was at Vidal Sassoon was a, such an important part of my journey and I think of my success. Um, and being fired uh, from the salon, as you said, kind of um, it kind of made me forge my own way forward, do you know what I mean, into the career I have today. It was the beginning, you know, of a career. Yeah. And I hold those months uh that I had at Vidal Sassoon very close to me. And as I said, the style of Vidal uh, Sassoon and uh, his work and other people's work like Trevor and the great haircuts of that time still inform me today, do you know what I mean? So it was a very important and informative part of my journey. Um, yeah, so that was it. I mean, I loved, you know, being in this epicenter that South Martin Street was at the time with all the boutiques and all the sort of, you know, it was like a fashion parade, Mm. that street. You know, it was in the middle of London and it was at the time the epicenter of fashion. You know, you had Gautier, Browns, you know, Ebony, you had every kind of major boutique there. And on a Saturday, it was like a cast of characters, you know, mm. walking that street. It was like a runway. And I think that informed me as much as being at Vidal Sassoon um, about what I wanted to do in the future in a way. Yeah, yeah. So that that sort of discipline or, you know, structured way of thinking, whatever it was, in your early time at Sassoon, that, that still had some sort of influence on your aesthetic, even, even now, going forward. It's something that influenced you at some point creatively that still you know you carry with you no completely I think you know I've often said in interviews that each part of my career there's been great teachers do you know what I mean that I've learned from and yeah. the beginning was being at Vidal Sassoon and you know it went on and I didn't know at the time yeah. you can't predict what's going to happen but I, I noticed looking back now you know that was the beginning of a journey uh, which I don't think's ended. Do you know what I mean? I don't think my journey's ended in, yeah. in any way. Um, but you know, when I look back, there were periods in my career that there were great teachers, and and it wasn't such an obvious teaching Sassoon's in that way. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like I could talk about other periods in my career where there were obvious people that taught me, but just something about being at that in that establishment at that time mm. on that street that really kind of taught me something, you know, we talked earlier before we started this recording about, you know, the people that worked at the salons that I still remember. Mm. Um, Even, you know, it it might've been just the way they did their own hair. Do you know what I mean? We talked about the receptionists who 
had style and I was attracted to for, for I don't know what reason, but it was obviously their style. You know, I wasn't as kind of aware of what was going in at the time. Yeah. But, you know, I still remember things like that. And that still comes out in my work today. Yeah. Well, my, my memories is that you spent most of your time having fun. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think, I think, I don't know where I was in my head then. Do yeah. you know I mean, because I know if I'd have really buckled down, it would have been such an amazing training. I would have got from Sassoon's. Um, but it, I, it just wasn't, it wasn't meant to be for me. And I think you have to realize and sometimes that we're not always you know, sometimes in life, we kind of stick to one journey. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And I don't know what guided me, do you know mm. what I mean? Whether it was myself or it was just fate that pushed me in certain directions and I went with it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I didn't have much, you know, even though you sort of said I felt confident, I wasn't very confident then as a person. Um, I was, you know, very insecure about lots of things. And that probably played into me not being able to sort of really connect with the training or the discipline of Sassoon's. Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe I was that little bit older when I started hairdressing. I wasn't 16, which I know a lot of people at that time were 16 when they started. I was like 20, nearly 21. Yeah. So I was that little bit older and I'd been traveling a little bit before in Europe, doing a little sort of, sort of time out of England in between, you know, starting my career. And maybe I wasn't, you know, the brown dungarees and the, you know, <laughs> yeah. all that. Yeah, you had to wear brown dungarees at Sassoon's then. Do you yeah. Know what I mean? yeah. Um, you know, and there was a sort of a discipline to it. Do you know what I mean? And I don't think I was um, a fit. Yeah, I don't time. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. Uh, what, what was it about hair in the first place that attracted you to there? I mean, you said you'd been traveling around for a bit and you were a bit older than most of them. Like, like what was it that drew you in that direction? Well, I think there was something subconsciously that was drawing me to London and drawing me to fashion, but I didn't know that at the time mm. again. And I think hairdressing was, for me, the way of connecting to some kind of style, do you mm. mean? which again, I didn't know then. I didn't yeah. quite know why I was doing hair. You know, I wasn't that kind of, I wasn't like a lot of people today that are very focused about knowing what they want. And mm. today when you speak to young people, young hairdressers, which I obviously have on my team, they're very kind of, they kind of know what they want to do, what they want to achieve. Back then in the early 80s, it wasn't so people weren't as kind of clear about their paths as people are today. And I certainly wasn't. I don't really know what attracted me to hairdressing, except I think there was something about the idea of style and change that I liked. Yeah. But it was so, later on that I developed what I knew what I liked about hairdressing. Right. So when you left there, um, you know, did you, like you continued hairdressing, obviously. You went and worked in another salon, did you? What was the because you sort of dropped off the earth from from my perspective, just didn't see you again. And then all of a sudden started hearing of you, you know, in, and it seemed like a bit of an overnight success. Now, obviously it wasn't an overnight success, but so you leave Sassoon's and you go and get a job in another salon, or what what was the, the foray or the transition into you doing editorial work? Well, I, I did. I went to work in various salons in London. I was probably, without knowing it again, Anthony, trying to find myself where mm. I felt comfortable, where I could really be myself. And I went through various salons and there were little bits of every salon that I kind of liked. 
but they weren't the whole. They weren't the 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 kind of the ultimate for me. Do you know what I mean? I couldn't really see myself doing ten clients a day, and you know all that mm-hmm. went with it. And then at one salon, uh, there was a, a hairdresser called Carmel, and I don't think she's a hairdresser anymore. She might be. I think she lives in Canada. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she did session work. She w- did photo shoots. Mm-hmm. And one particular day, she said, oh, can you, you know, they were all taking an assistant from the salon. And she asked me to go. And I went and instantly I was attracted to that, you know, environment. And I felt at home there. And I felt that that's where I could really, truly be myself. Um, as I say, this sounds very clear now. At the time, it wasn't clear as that. But I, there was yeah. something about the idea of creation, being with models, being with photographers, being with makeup artists, and probably the characters that it kind of attracted, mm. attracted me. So soon after that initial kind of um, experience, I decided to leave the salon and literally, I wasn't that hairdressy savvy at that point. This was probably two and a half years into training. Mm-hmm. I wasn't on the floor or anything. I decided to go in that direction um, to learn or to try and work in that, in, you know, in studios. And basically, I had to learn on the job. You know, I hadn't learned all these techniques that were required. Um, obviously, the jobs I were doing were kind of quite, um, pedestrian for for sort of when I started working they were for like woman's own and sort of women's weekly magazines that wouldn't mm. cry at that time I don't know like a tonging a curling or something but I would actually be learning on the job I had a lot of front that I could yeah, kind yeah. of I could <laughs> get what they wanted <laughs> do you know what I mean or I had a yeah. lot of chat in, yeah. or I would guide it in the way that what I kind of knew I could do do you know yeah. what I mean okay good yeah. yeah so I kind of you know I kind of winged it a bit but yeah. along the way I was learning and and meeting other creatives I think that's what I really love was meeting other creative people and being my own person developing my own self in a way yeah. which I think is really important in any career that you feel true do you know what I mean and I think it was the beginning of a journey of feeling like me it was very important i didn't feel connected to myself if that makes sense and yeah, slowly i was beginning to connect to myself okay so i mean because that's interesting i mean obviously you know uh the, the sassoon style of work doesn't train you traditionally or it certainly didn't then uh for dressing hair for editorial work so i was curious as to how you became this you know master of dressing hair and so i'm surprised so i'd imagine that you were going to tell you to me that you went and worked in these other salons and learned how to how to dress hair and how to round brush blow dry and how to set hair and tong hair and whatever but the reality is as you're saying that wasn't the case at all you, you literally were teaching yourself on the job was there was there anyone that you, that, you know, that mentored you, that took you under their wing in anyone that you assisted for any length of time to, to sort of master those skills? No, not at all. It was a very different industry then. It was much more of a cottage industry. It wasn't like it is today. You didn't, people didn't even really know about the fashion business. It was just beginning yeah. to explode in that period, like, you know, magazines like the face id street style appearing do you know what i mean and people looking at the street 
but you know Vogue was almost like this mecca kind of thing yeah. it was like untouchable mm. it, it was much more kind of um a closed shop back then so there mm. weren't I didn't really know how to go about you know assisting somebody as I said there was like this girl I assisted for a while and a few other people I went out on shoots with um but I didn't really apprentice in that way. Mm. I, I think what happened is I kind of started looking at fashion magazines and living a dream. You know, I wanted to know that person in that magazine who looked a certain way. And I might be started looking at like, you know, American Vogue and Bruce Weber pictures or like mm. Irving Penn pictures or Abaddon pictures. And the dream that was created, I kind of was very attracted to. Yeah. So I kind of started this sort of unknowingly building up a sort of library of references, even though it was n not what I knew at all. It was like a fantasy of another world. Uh, at the same time, I was in England where all this street style was going on. As you know, at that period, you know, people were very expressive with their own kind of sort of um, um, you know, it was the big, you know, not the beginning because there was been street styles um in different decades but there was an explosion of it and as you know at that period there'd be like new wave punk goth there was all these subcultures go on that you know hair was a, such an important part of the code mm. to what you belong to do you know what i mean yeah. and that was all around me there was all this kind of like great nightclub scene that was sort of happening and and you know I sort of like started going out and being a voyeur I didn't actually I didn't have the sort of courage to dress up myself and be outlandish with the way I look but I was almost like looking at all these people and they would became my secret heroes but it was very much about the way they either transformed or the illusion they were presenting to me or to the world it was interesting as a game it's now I can in, in re retrospect I can see that at the time I was just in awe of these people I remember going there was a store in Covent Garden which isn't the Covent Garden we know today it was like a a, a, um, a vegetable market do you know what I mean mm -hmm. but there was a store there called PX mm -hmm. and it sold like futuristic kind of utilitarian clothing and it was kind of the beginning of futurism at that point and there was a girl called princess julia who i know now who's a dj and sort of club personality and steve strange who sadly has passed who was another kind of great style maverick and these people they were kind of style gods to me i'd walk into the store and the way they presented themselves the way they did their hair was so impressive and there were lots of people they were sort of named characters that i can sort of remember but there was tons of people as i say on the street so all that kind of thing was informing me and i kind of probably wanted to sort of be a part of it or something or it was informing me but no i didn't have a sort of a hairdressing mentor or someone that was teaching me these techniques mm. i would go to a studio and i say bluff my way through a, a, a photo shoot and you know i'd become more and more confident do you know what i mean the more and more i kind of did it yeah but i mean fast forward to now i'm still that person i still go on a, a photo shoot or do a show and <laughs> still i'm very unsure of myself i'm sure i still think i'm this might be the job that i really show everyone that i'm no good you know i have an insecurity <laughs> to myself every yeah. job still Amazing. like it was back then i feel like 
I've got to produce and can I produce? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I long this sort of quite long journey in the hairdressing world. I've never become over complacent about what uh, my skills are because I suppose maybe I don't feel truthfully that I learned technically all the skills. I learned hairdressing for need to, to create. So if mm-hmm. I wanted to create some kind of sculptured hair, I kind of would work it out, mm. you know. And even later on, I actually learned and still to this day will learn from my assistants who might be particularly good at something and I kind of look at them. Um, so, yeah, so, so it's we, a long-winded way of No, I, I'm, look, I'm, I'm happy just to push the button on and let you talk. I mean, you know, right. I love every word that comes out of your mouth. There's so much, you know, experience and, and wisdom in there. Um, were, were you, though, this guy that goes home and gets a mannequin head out, uh, a doll's head out and practice, you know, how am I going to make that look work? You know, were you, were, were you disciplined like that? No, I wasn't. I was somebody that actually would and still do, which isn't a good thing always, be in my head. Do you know what I mean? Other people mm. would do sketches or say use a block to create some styles and work it out. Mine was very much like, and I still do this, I envisage a character mm. or a kind of um, something I want to create. And it's weird. Um, I do this thing that I almost become the character. Mm-hmm. So if I'm doing something that's very sculptural, I sort of get into the headspace of what that would be on my head in a way and how I would build it, do you know what I mean? Or if it's something very aggressive or something I would do with like overly using a product to create a new texture or a very sort of what would traditionally seem a bad texture, yeah. I would imagine that person and why they would do it. Mm. So I would I, I'd come at the kind of the process by almost becoming the character because when I'm being very sort of true to myself and my style and I, I know when I'm hitting the tipping point of it being right, do you mm. know what I mean? And it can just be as I'm creating it, do you know what I mean? It can't be too technical beforehand. I mean, there's some hair that obviously has to be technically worked out if I'm doing huge hair pieces or I don't know, 10 wigs on a head of hair. You know, I did not, I mean, I did a show two years ago for Valentino Couture and I did this very huge kind of like 60s kind of hair or 80s kind of like sort of Abaddon-esque hair. And, you know, they'd sort of give me some pre-warning and I kind of worked it out with my head assistant. You know, we tried pads one thing, dying pieces, building this thing up. You know, I don't just wing it and go into the situation and go, yeah. oh, it works. I'm not that good. You know, I have to sort of like <laughs> kind of practice yeah. it. And sort of if you haven't done something for a while, you have to learn it. Your hands have to relearn that kind of thing. If you're doing finger waves, it's not something you do every day. Yeah. And so I would have to, one of Mark Jacobs' shows, we did all finger waves, and it was a case of me learning with my team. Even though I knew I wanted to create it, I knew the character. Mm. It was something I'd done in a book that Mark Jacobs was very inspired by on Stella Tennant in my first book, Head. And it was like a finger wave and then natural texture. So it was like a juxtaposition of textures, something very old and something very new. So I knew the character in, in why I'd created that, 
sort of like 20 years ago. Exactly. <laughs> Why well, I created that 20 years ago, and I had to recreate that on 60 models with all different hair types and all different sort of weights of hair and, and I don't know, blah, blah, blah. So I had to make sure that I really could kind of technically do that. So, uh, you know, two weeks before the show, I started like doing night classes with my team to perfect it so we could do it actually on the day in three hours on 60 wow. people. It yeah. wasn't that we all knew how to do finger waves. Yeah, yeah. So, you okay. know, you go back to a schooling, do you know what I mean? And then, you know, somebody on my team might show me how to do it even better in a sort of more, and um, you have to be open to sort of like learning. Yeah. You know, I think what's hard being the boss sometimes is people always look to you like you're always going to know everything. Mm. And that's not true. I don't know everything. Other people on my team could do something better than me and I'll learn from them and I can show them how to do something. and that's the process you just have to let your guard down and be you know show vulnerability mm. in what we do to learn more there's no i mean i i would i would hate you know my success comes from joint effort you know it always looks like it's me but you know i have a team of people that i work with that support my vision and help me create that and sort of put it out there mm. I, I think that vulnerability and humility are, are a strength, not a weakness. And a, and a lot of people right. are frightened to be vulnerable, uh, uh, you know, and so they're not humble because they want to look like they're something that they're not sort of thing, and it's a, they're very undoing. So, uh, Guido, when, when, you know, your, your early days on the sort of editorial thing, when it all started to change for you, um, you know, with the campaigns and stuff that you were doing with, with David Sims um, and the whole grunge thing with hair. When did that sort of happen? How did that happen? Well, what was interesting, when I first started my career, back when you kind of said my left, as soon as I started, I didn't have my own style. I would copy people, you know, I would copy styles. So if like yeah. big hair was in, I'd kind of copy that. And I sort of, you know, I'd sort of look at hairdressers work in magazines and I'd do a version of that. I didn't have my own voice. I wasn't confident enough mm. to have my own voice. Do you know what I mean? And I didn't even know what my own voice was. And as I said earlier on in, in this um, interview, that along the way you come along teachers, people come along yeah. um, to sort of like, not guide you and they don't you don't even know they're kind of less yourself but you know there's there's definitely like in the, these mentors come along and david sims who was a sort of contemporary of mine he wasn't much older but he had such a strong vision he mm. was an assistant of a photographer i used to work with and we got on very well and as you said i was kind of working quite quickly i was doing like covers of l and you know, I was doing, I was working. I wasn't like a huge international kind of hairdresser, but I was working in London. Yeah. And this um, young assistant, David Sims, asked me if I would do some tests together. And because we got on so well, I said, sure. And it was, he started to teach me about looking at what I really knew. He said, you don't know this woman with big, glamorous hair. You're a suburban boy growing up in the south coast of England with your experiences. You grew up with like punk. You grew up with new wave. You know, look at what you really know. That's when your 
I don't know how he knew that, but that's what he was doing in his photography. He knew the suburban boy, the suburban girl that hung out in playgrounds and created their own style. He knew somewhere instinctively, because he's a great artist, about the way they might even look. And he was telling me to look at these people, these kids on the street, these kids that we'd see on sort of like walking down, you know, I lived in a, in a council estate at that point. He said, look at what's around you, because that's what you'll really know how to do well, because it will be intuitive to you. So yeah. he was, a, as I say, I didn't know at the time, but he was a great teacher. And he would point out things to me in people's hair and say, look at this, look at that, look at this bad texture, look at this. You know, he'd be showing me. And he kind of opened a window to sort of, you know, that whole aesthetic. And I kind of did know what he was talking about because I grew up in the same world as him, really. Mm. And we started to just sort of um, just, you know, we connected artistically. He pushed me and I sort of then ran with that. Do you know what I mean? And was, you know, it was a time of of change in fashion, you know, the supermodel glamour thing was just going and there was this new kind of um, voice being heard, which, you know, connected with the political time and music scene. There was Nirvana, all these Seattle bands, this whole new kind of like, it was like a new punk in a way. It was an anti and there was an anti glamour and there was an anti hero going on and Kate Moss was the kind of poster child for it now of course she's a very glamorous iconic woman back then she was yeah. like an oddity she was like this 15 16 year old Croydon girl that was the antithesis of supermodels mm -hmm. but she became the kind of you know vehicle for that whole movement which we were a part of and that really kind of showed me a lot about being true to myself because I could really then, nobody could tell me that was wrong because I was being true. Well, and so I, then I started looking at all, you know, the anti-beauty ideas, the bad textures, the bad cuts, the bad color. And why was it considered bad? Why was this considered good? And why was this considered bad? Yeah. So the whole beauty kind of idea was shifting at that point. And now, you know, 30 years on, we all know that there's no, no, no one can say something's good or bad. It's just a personal taste. But back then, mm. it was an affront to sort of just, you know, leave a model's hair and, you know, make her ears stick out and, you know, cut somebody's bangs too short. And it, mm. when it jumped because of the hairline, that that was the beauty as aspect of that cut, do you know what I mean, or something like that. And sort of showing all the things that we would traditionally hide in hair and makeup. Well, you're the master at pushing all that and getting away with it. You take it right to the edge of questioning um, right. what is beauty, what is the definition of beauty and making people look at it again. Uh, and I'm going to come to that. But I, I, as you were talking about, you know, that time with David Sims, was there a moment for you where, where you sort of, you know, felt you'd, you had credibility, that you'd arrived where you were you know, you'd gone to another level as a as a uh, editorial hairdresser. So I think that point when I think we've really felt that we were saying something is when Calvin Klein signed Kate Moss, and it was probably like ninety four or something. And then he invited us, me, David Sims, um, to go over, and I started working on 
um, his runway shows. And at that time, Calvin Klein was hugely influential. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He was such a powerhouse in America to have his kind of his um, blessing or him. You know, it was a calling card for us all for America, really. Yeah. So yeah. I think that was something that really kind of established us. It took it from like the Face magazine, ID magazine, and it made it really kind of, you know, at first we just thought we were like an indie band, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then getting this kind of record deal, you know, with a huge brand like CK or Calvin Klein was huge, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that was, I suppose, then it became, we became sort of, you know, the fashion world saw us, do you know what I mean? I think people are noticing it, do you know what I mean? But that's when it went to another level, do you know what I mean? And yep. we were very fetid and very kind of like, we was like the new messiahs of fashion. Everything else seemed old before that, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Everyone wanted undone hair. Everyone, everyone wanted like new beauties. So, you know, everyone wanted sort of character people. It was the beginning of like putting real people into ads, you know, the famous CK1 ad with kind of all different characters. Yeah. And then I went on to do a CK ad with Abaddon, who's actually that kind of, you know, white background, um, sort of almost um, very kind of looking at characters, on, you know, from the American West, you know, it was a kind of copy of that. Sure. So. So it went on to, so it was that that kind of raised me to a more sort of worldwide kind of, um, people started to take note of my thing. And then Harris was starting um, his shows and, you know, I got asked to do that. And so it sort of went to another place that people were taking um, this aesthetic, which felt alternative. It went kind of mainstream. Yeah. Okay. So that was a very that was that was that period, and it was obviously like again another kind of um, part of my career that was so important. I never knew it was going to happen. I was just being true. Do you know what I mean? So the people say to me, and I say to people, it's so important to be true to really connect to who you try and try and connect who you really are, because that's when your work would be at its best. If we yeah. keep trying, if I was like, for example, looking at Hollywood. And get at that. I don't. Where I'm from, I don't know anything about Hollywood. Mm. I don't understand the reason behind, you know, that pure ascetic at that time. But I did know about a street kid. I did know about that kind of that homemadeness because we were all doing it when we were kind of growing up, or it was around us. And so it, that that sort of like ascetic was really true to me. Mm. And so I could. Nobody could say that ascetic was wrong. Mm. So I always say to young people, don't try and copy me or young heads. Do what feels good to you because you'll do it the best that anyone can do because mm. it's true to you. Because we often, as creative, you said earlier, you feel insecure and you're looking for approve, an improvement, so you, you know, or approval. But really, you have to find it somewhere in your own and it's lovely to get approval and for people to really like what you do. But still to this day, people might say that's really great about my work, but I know if it's great yeah. or it's not so great. It, it, as I said, it goes back to that tipping point. I know when I think I've created something really that touches yeah. me. But, but one of the things you said about being true to yourself, I, I totally agree with that. But if you that person that's true to yourself and your own beauty aesthetic. Um, I suppose what I'm saying is this, if I scroll through your Instagram feed, 
There is mm. so much variety in there. You you do so many different things. Right. So which is the one that you're true to? Do you know what do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like I, I get how if you're true to it and you're expressing yourself because you know it. Um but but that doesn't that mean you get trapped in being known for a certain look? And we all know certain hairdressers or certain fashion designers or certain musicians that are known for a certain thing. And then we know others that constantly keep evolving and morphing into the next thing. So talk about that for a minute. What's really important is like in the beginning part of your career, if you have a pure vision at that point, people understand it. In the beginning part of your career, I think it's really important. Like if you're in a band, I keep referring to music, you need to be true. And then you might, you know, that's what attracts your core fans when you're true to yourself. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because people like identify with it. Um, and then I think as you go on, it's like as I furthered my career, I had to adapt. So I couldn't keep doing natural hair or that off natural hair because mm. it would only take me so far. And I was I had a big kind of, you know, I wanted to go to the top and I needed to work with different clients. I would always bring minus to it. So if I do glamour or I do retro or I do something oh you know I always feel it's me now because I feel you know fast forward 30 years and you're right my Instagram feed could be very dressed hair it could be very natural but I feel maybe it's because it's me I know it always has a punk aesthetic even mm. if it's really glamorous okay. or really sculptural, it's yeah. I always take it to an extreme so it becomes a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. So so w- what is beauty to you? Because that's exactly what you do. You always push the concept of taste and beauty. So uh, I, I don't know if that's a fair question or if that's a question you can even answer, but, but like what is um, your alternative idea of beauty? What is your definition of beauty? I think it changes all the time. Do you know what I mean? Because I can like something very classical and I can like something very subversive. Do you know what I mean? I think I really love style more than anything. And I I appreciate people who have style in history. Um, When I look back on people that have influenced me, it's always somebody who has their own personal style or has a way of being. And it's a presence. And I always admire that in men and women. Um, and unfortunately, it feels today there is not so much of like personal style. We're in a time when you know it's more manufactured. But when you do get them, and it does happen, when you do get people and they have their own style, I'm always very attracted to that. I'm always attracted to a subversiveness in beauty. And even if I do something very glamorous, as I said, I try and make it so extreme that it becomes something else, that it's too yeah. big or it's too sculptured, or it's too something. I don't want to sort of hit sort of like a medium point. Yeah. And I always say to my team, right, now take it up a bit more. Now push mm. it. You know, if someone's got a long face, let's accentuate that and make the forehead really look, you know, really exaggerate something. So there's a point of view. I mean, mm. especially in this time of um uh, as we talk, uh, we, we're going to talk about Instagram. You have to do something really sticks out. People are very visually savvy now, mm. and so if you do something sort of in between, it doesn't register with people. It's got to be something that is super colourful, super big, super blunt, super shaved. It has to be extreme. The things that we 
learned in the 80s or, you know, you know, there was a time that you could undercut somebody's hair and it would feel really extreme. It feels yeah. like nothing now. Yeah. It's like you can't push the beauty aesthetic further than, you know, it went. And it's funny, like in a funny way, I felt at some point that you couldn't do anything more sort of extreme in cutting. So I thought it's more extreme to do dressing hair now. Mm. So I would challenge myself. I've been doing sort of extreme cutting or something i would then want to turn it around do something extremely dressed yeah you know and extremely perfected and extremely detailed so it's almost like a confectionery you know when you look at like a cake and it's had piping and it's so ornate and sort of it's almost sickly it's yeah. too it's too saccharine and i would want to do that with a hairstyle so i would like do something I, i'm guessing and then put pin curls and bits and bobs. So it's so detailed that it was almost it was almost subversive in its in its sort of extremity. And that's what I always try to sort of do with my work, mm. whether it be something natural. How do I make that naturalness subversive? How do I make someone look at it and question the person? Yeah. That's really important because I always love to question why somebody looks a certain way. Mm. And when I look back in history, all the people that I'm attracted to um, are people that have visually pushed their look. And it could be in a very glamorous way. It could be in an 18th century way. It could be in a haircutting way. And I suppose going back to Sassoon's, I felt Vidal and his team of uh, people around him at that per point in the late 60s, really pushed hair cutting to the limit mm. of um, taste, the taste at that time. It was yeah. an affront to people's taste. And that's what I love about um, Sassoon's aesthetic at that point. I mean, that's why it's always sort of kept with me. And any hairdresser that I admire um, has had that some point in their, in their work. Yeah. Do, do you have a, a favourite uh, period or a favourite I mean. No, not really. I mean, I, you know, I loved, you know, 80s, 60s. Uh, no, not really. For, uh, no, not really. I, I sort of, I think what's so exciting about being a hairdresser is there's so much out there. There's so much references from, you know, going back in time to what we're seeing today. You know, mm. people are often ask me about inspiration, but it's everywhere. You can see it everywhere. It's just trying to get your hands to make it yours, yeah. which is important. And also what I say to a lot of hairdressers that work with me, a lot of hairdressers are great technical hairdressers, but they don't look at the person they're putting it on. There's something quite, I'm not, I'm very comfortable working with a girl or boy's face, do you know what I mean? And creating on them and actually looking at them very objectively. Mm. And I feel that connection is something that has uh, helped my career where I find a lot of hairdressers that are great technical hairdressers that um, have been around me. They're frightened to actually look at the person in the mirror in the, and really study them and think what would cutting a bang really short do to that person's face or if building a hair up huge and then making it very narrow or making it very wide and playing with proportion do you know what I mean mm. and really seeing how you can change somebody for the good or the bad or the extreme or whatever you want to create that's what is so exciting about being a hairdresser with 
hands and a vision, you can create so many amazing things on somebody. And it doesn't have to be just a model. I mean, I'm lucky that I get to work with, you know, you know, um, models that I can create on an, and it's photographed um, or it's on a runway that everyone looks at. And I suppose I've earned that privilege, do yeah. you mean? Yeah, but you've but often they, done some of your great work has been on non-professional people, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, yes. On, I mean, nowadays, <clears throat> I say the idea, especially, you know, I think we're having a resurgent from what I was saying about in the early 90s, there was a new aesthetic in beauty. <clears throat> Over the last few years, we've had another redux of that of seeing beauty again in a new way and really celebrating lots of different kinds of beauty and yes who what is a model today i'm not sure if you see a runway show today it's a mixture of every kind of man and woman yeah and um which is a very healthy aesthetic do you know mm. what i mean and someone could have glorious blonde blowing hair someone could have naturally curly textured hair someone could have a very sort of street haircut someone could have very you know extreme color and they could all live in the same world because that's the kind of world we live in today and the more and more we see alternative ideas of beauty the more we won't keep going back to this sort of um society's pressure of beauty you know all my work has some way trying to maybe because I always felt like an outsider trying to show that the outsider is kind of or the outside hairstyle is also really interesting and Mm. worth looking at. So that is the end of part one of my interview with Guido. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. Part two, which is episode 41, is due out on the 26th of May. So don't miss it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.